Welcome to Seacoast. Welcome to Seacoast. Get your Bibles. Let's go to the book of Ephesians. We've been studying through this great book written to this church in Ephesus uh, in the first century. Uh, and we're going to see today in another, just another example of how the Ephesian culture was actually much more similar to our culture today than we want to realize, than we often uh, realize. So open to Ephesians chapter 5. We'll pick it up in a minute in verse 3. Verse 3. So welcome. If you are new, my name is Pastor Dale. We always provide an outline that kind of helps you follow along and learn a little more if you want to use it. On the back side, there's always also a set of uh, weekly devotionals that you can go to. We can email these to you if you get signed up for the Encounters with God. We love encouraging people to go back to the Word, learn for yourself, examine it, apply it to your life, and this is a great tool to help you do that. So I'd really encourage that you take advantage of that. Pray with me. Father God, thank you. Thank you, thank you. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you that out of that love for us, Father, that you flow truth. You help us understand you much better. And Father, today also you help us understand your design for us much better. So I pray that as we study together, learn together, I pray that you would kind of help us, Father, to uh, open our minds, open our hearts, be willing to, uh, to say, Lord, you help me. And by your strength, uh, we want to all continue to change to be more the people you have designed us to be. So that's my prayer, Father, this morning. And teach us especially as we continue this subject we opened up last week of what it means to really love in Christ's name. Amen. What's the context? I love to set the context so you know where this passage kind of lands in this section in Ephesians. Last week we kind of introduced you to this five-part series that's tucked in the middle of this book. It deals with kind of what's it mean to really take your faith seriously. I like to call it extreme faith or radical faith. What's that look like if we're really serious about following Jesus Christ? The topics we looked at last week, we opened this section with love extremely as we looked at the topic of what it really means to love like Jesus loved us and apply that as a lifestyle. Today we'll be looking at some of the counterfeits of love because it's not only important to understand the positive side of what love should look like, but we need to open our eyes to be aware of the culture and ways in which love gets misrepresented, misunderstood in the culture. Next three weeks, light for darkness, wisdom for life, and power that you can actually see. And I don't know about you, but need a little more light or understanding, a little more wisdom for everyday decisions, and a little more power in my life via the the presence of God's Spirit actually working in ways that I can tell whether He's working. Those are the next three weeks. I don't know about you, but I'm dialing in, okay? So ask the Lord with me now to teach us. Father, we do ask You to teach us. We thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the wisdom in it. And Father, this is a tough topic. It's a tough topic because it's one that kind of confronts our culture, confronts our life. And Father, it speaks into a very intimate part of who we are in terms of our sexuality. So I do pray that as always, that you would do what only you can do, that your Spirit who's with us, loves us, would uh, speak into our lives. And Father, I know every one of us come at this from a different place, and I pray that you, by your Spirit, would... uh, Just uh, speak truth into our life, but also remind us as we study this of your incredible grace, your incredible love, 
Thank You that You are the God of second chances, third chances. You're the God who never gives up on us. And I thank You for that. In Christ's name, Amen. Last week we introduced the topic of what it means to really live a lifestyle of love. And if there's anything that everybody in the culture, Christian, non-Christian, people of other faiths, agree on, it's the need for more love. I mean, who doesn't know the end of what the world needs now is love. What kind of love? Love. Sweet love. That's the only thing that they're... Okay, some of you are just too young to know these old <laughs> tunes, right? Okay. Yeah. You know what the world needs is more love. You're going to hear it. Everyone from Jesus to John Lennon is going to give that to you. You, you know, you're going to hear it in every part of the culture. It's a universal message, and it's a universal need. But especially when you begin to combine that with this thing called love and marriage, or what is God's design for how we love, especially not just loving other people in general, but loving in the context of our personal relationships that we often call marriage. What's that look like? It's interesting to just acknowledge the the obvious as we begin, and that is the changing thinking in our culture. In the New York Times, uh, a recent article in the New York Times uh, begins this way. It says, at 32, one of my clients, this is written by a counselor, I'll call her Jennifer for sake of being anonymous, had a lavish wine country wedding. By then, Jennifer and her boyfriend had already lived together for more than four years. The event was attended by the couple's families and friends and their two dogs. When Jennifer started therapy with me, less than a year later, she was looking for a divorce lawyer. I spent more time, quoting Jennifer, she said sobbing, I spent more time planning my wedding than I spent happily married. Most disheartening to Jennifer was that she'd really tried to do everything right. She said, my parents got married way too young, and as a result, they got divorced. So I figured if we lived together, that would fix it. What happened? Cohabitation or living together before marriage in the United States has increased by more than one, more than 1,500% in the past half century. Here's a quote, a stat, for example, in 1960, when I was kind of beginning to even think about girls, okay? Because I was born in 53, so in 1960, I'm seven years old. I already thought girls were pretty cool at age seven. Now, I know a lot of guys thought girls were icky at seven. I didn't. I was an early adapter, okay, or early adopter, right? Okay, how many of you thought girls were cool at age seven? Raise your hand. Okay, how many of you thought boys were cool at age seven? Okay, there we go, okay. So anyway, some of you can read. How about age 17? How many of you thought they were cool? All right, okay. Now we can relate. Okay, good. Some of you were just late figuring it out, but here we go. In 1960, though, about that time, there was 450,000 unmarried couples living together in the United States. Today, the number is more than 7.5 million. The majority of young adults in their 20s will live with romantic partners at least once, Many more than once, more than half of all marriages will be preceded by living together. One study actually said that in terms of being sexually involved with more or one partner before marriage, that the current 
stat is about 90% of young adults. So let me just kind of call the elephant in the room out. We're talking about us. Because if you think that with, as soon as you gather a group of people that are interested in Jesus, that people interested in Jesus are not interested in sex, you just made a big false assumption. And if you think that people interested in Jesus are not affected by the culture that we grow up in and live in and breathe, we're making a very dangerous false assumption. So this is not just their problem out there in the world and the culture, this is our problem within the church as well. Perhaps to a lesser degree statistically, I would certainly hope so. But yet this is something that many of us growing up in our culture today have a lot of questions about what does the Bible really teach and is it really accurate and how can I really believe it? And, and some of you in this room right now are probably living together and not married and you need to know that I welcome you and I'm thrilled that you're here. And what I'm going to teach today is simply bringing you information that you perhaps have never even heard. And we love you, we welcome you, and, uh, and I want you today to relax and realize we're not here to judge and condemn you, we're here to help you understand. So what is the truth about this thing called marriage, love, and our sexuality? Because truth is always your friend, even if it confronts the culture. It was interesting that uh, in another article that I ran across this week of a study, a major study that was done, it was started in 2007, it's been updated and, and built upon and more recently published again in 2014 by a couple professors at the University of Virginia. And again, I'm quoting the New York Times and I'm quoting secular university studies. So this is not the latest findings of some Christian organization or Biola University, or the, your favorite Christian school. This is what secular America is finding as they research and study this topic. They, they start their research article by saying this, the summary. It says, if you happen to be hanging out at the magazine aisle this spring, you know that the hot news in Hollywood gossip was Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt's wedding plans. After almost 10 years of being together and six children together, some adopted, I believe, the couple would be taking, finally, the step toward tying the knot, according to all reports. Brangelina's experience is increasingly representative of contemporary American family life. These are not just Hollywood love stories. They represent a broader cultural trend. More and more, the major milestones of a relationship are occurring prior to marriage rather than after. It goes on to summarize by saying this, this relationship sequence of sex, cohabitation, and sometimes even having children preceding marriage has become the norm in our culture. And that is the world that we live in today. It's the world we live in today because for many couples it just makes sense. After all, you don't buy a pair of shoes without trying them on first, right? And if we don't even buy a pair of shoes without trying it on first, they figure maybe living together and trying to test it out first would maybe prevent this thing that they went through with the painful divorces of their parents or their grandparents and, and of their friends. So we need to understand why people are looking for a way to, to lower the pain in life to lower the pain in life. 
But what you're going to find out later on, which I'll point out the big picture, and this won't surprise you, is the secular studies have confirmed that this approach of being sexually involved together, moving in together, maybe even having kids, then getting married, is not working. The summary of these studies by these secular studies and researchers is this. The divorce rate goes up, not down. And the more sexually active you are before marriage, it goes up even more in direct proportion. Not only does the, the divorce rate go up, not down, the measures of marital satisfaction, in other words, the quality of the marriage, goes down, not up, whenever you choose to live together before you're married. So the fascinating thing is, because God has a plan for our lives, and that plan described early in the Bible, it's not news to you probably, that God's designed the Christian approach to this relationship called marriage uh, and, and romance and, and love is, is sequenced differently. It's summarized in Genesis chapter 2, which we'll not study today, but we've got sermons on this if you want to go back and we can help you find the links to these. We've taught on this. But you know that God's design is that man and woman would be created for one another for that relationship. And, and, and God's design is summarized in these words. Leave your father and mother. In other words, become independent on your own. Leave, then cleave to one another. It's a Hebrew word that means an inseparable bond. It's a word that's used for like how even a disease like leprosy would cleave to the skin where you can't separate it, okay? So it's, this, it's a word, it's a strong word for inseparable covenant commitment to one another. So you leave, then you cleave, and then the two become one flesh. And you are naked and not ashamed, it says. And you enjoy the intimacy <clears throat> and the joy of this thing called sex, which God has designed for us to enjoy in that context of a lifelong committed relationship called marriage. Now that's God's design. But even as I share that, uh, our culture today would say, you know, that was great for your grandparents or for your great-grandparents, but I just don't think that works today. I think we've kind of moved beyond that. So the culture no longer buys into that. See, what you need to realize is the Ephesian culture didn't buy into it either. The Ephesians, as a church, these were people coming into a relationship with Jesus Christ in the first century Greek and Roman world. And in the Greek and Roman world, all kinds of sexual promiscuity and infidelity and multiple partners and, and, and even at times going to their temples to worship and engaging in sexual relations with a prostitute in a temple. That was their culture. So in some ways, their culture made our culture look tame. So they, this was the culture that people were coming to Jesus, becoming followers of Jesus, and, and, and all of a sudden, God's radical design, God's very different design for your sexuality and relationships and marriage it is totally different. So it was important for the Apostle Paul not to just say, well, you know, we kind of realize that you come out of your Ephesian culture, so we want to respect that, and, and you know, each culture can decide what they believe is true. But you know what? Instead, God says, you know, let's dial back. Let's reset the norm as to what God really wants our lives to be like. And, and by the way, the goal is not to dial back to the 1950s. 
the goal is not to dial back to Ozzy and Harriet or leave it to Beaver. Or and it, and I've really lost some of you at this point, haven't I? Okay, you see the reruns on Nick at Night at least as a kid, right? Right. Okay, you know Leave It to Beaver. Right? I'm just picking on our young adults here, right? Right. You know Leave It to Beaver. Okay, thank you very much. Okay, so I'm still relevant. I'm glad. Okay, so so the the fact is that all of a sudden we have a very different we have a disconnect between the culture's thinking and what God designed. So let's not dial back to the 1950s, because I don't want to go back to the 1950s where a lot of women were disrespected and all kinds of stuff. And, you know, I want to go back to the creation of man, woman, and marriage. And that's earlier than the 1950s. Agreed? Agreed. So what do we learn from today's passage? Now that I've set you up, let's go there. Number one, never lose sight of the context. The context for today's passage is last week's sermon. If you missed last week's sermon, you must go online, listen to it, and take some notes on it because without understanding it, you'll never really be able to apply what we learned today very well. So here's the short version. Last week we learned this. Therefore, be imitators of God. That's God's design for you. As beloved children, because you're a child of God, God's will is that you actually grow to be more like God. That's his desire for you. Now, you're never going to be perfect like God, but God lives in you in his Holy Spirit, and he's given you life in Christ, and he wants us to be imitators of God. That's a pretty cool objective. Especially you imitate God by walking in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. An offering, a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. So what we learned last week was that God's will is that we walk in love and the essence of that is defined by Jesus, but not just Jesus the nice guy, Jesus the sacrifice on the cross, being willing to surrender himself as a sacrifice modeled by Christ, motivated as an act of not just getting your way or manipulating the other people to love you back, but as an act of worship to God. So loving like Jesus, sacrificing yourself for the needs of someone else, like Jesus sacrificed himself, you learn to do that, you're going to be an incredible lover in every sense. In fact, we're going to find out today, it even makes you a better lover in terms of the intimacy of marriage, if you learn this lesson. But Paul knew that the Ephesians were coming out of a culture that was confused on love. So now we launch into today's section, and it begins with the word but. And the reason you see the word but is it's a contrast. So in, in contrast to this definition of love, loving, walking in love as a lifestyle modeled by Jesus, sacrificing myself for others, there's some screwed up thinking about love in the culture. But avoid these. So do this, but don't do this. What is the... <laughs> Never mind. I almost said something there. What, what, what is the contrast? Okay. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, oh, never mind. I, I can't say that. <laughs> if I'm talking to a youth group, I say that. I don't say that in church. Here we go. But anyway. Okay. Okay. The point is, anytime you see the word but, there's contrast. And that's the point. Here we go. But what? Watch out for cheap imitations. Don't confuse lust for love. And that's the summary of this next verse. Look at verse 3. But immorality and impurity or greed must not even be named among you, verse 3, as is proper among saints. 
Okay, so stop right there. He names three imitations of love that are in contrast to this higher definition of love. Immorality. The word is a Greek word, porneia. It's the word from which we get pornography. It's the word from which it means a general, it's a general term, a very general Greek term that's applied for types of sexual relationship either before or outside of marriage. It, it, it can apply to both. It can re- apply to what's often uh, in English called fornication or, or sexual relations before marriage. It also is used at times for, uh, for adultery or uh, unfaithfulness and sex outside of marriage when you're married. Uh, it's, it's a broad sexual term that stands for either of those things. Secondly, he says, or don't have impurity. The word impurity is a different Greek word, but it means sexual uncleanness or impurity. It's, the, it's, it's lust-driven, uh, inappropriate uh, nakedness, inappropriate touching, inappropriate behavior. Uh, this is, some, in other words, he starts with the, with the term that's most often used for sexual intercourse before or outside of marriage. And then he, and he says, but also deal with other forms of impurity in your sexual relationship. And we don't have time to try to define what those are, but I tell people, if, you, if, if your mother walked through the room and you felt really guilty, don't do it. Or another way to say it is this, if your mom's divorced and she's dating, how do you want your mom to be treated? I mean, there's different ways you can test this, okay? Because uh, now you're moving into a little bit of a gray zone. But he says, don't just deal with immorality, deal with impurity. And then he mentions the third term, greed. Now, this one puzzled me at first because I thought, hey, I thought he was talking about sex. And now he's talking about money because greed is often used in, in the context of being greedy for possessions or money or things like that. And the fact is, in this passage, um, he's talking about greed in the general sense of coveting a strong desire to have, get, or possess something that is not yours. It's a strong desire to have, get, or possess something that's not yours. And I think here he's not really talking about money. This whole passage is talking about uh, our relationships with one another. And, and what he's talking about sexually is it's that greedy attitude that I want what I want when I want it. Or it's most expressed in the, in the English phrase, if you love me, you let me. And it's that type of attitude applied to our relationships that he says, don't, don't be greedy, don't be impure, don't be immoral, put these things away from you. Now, why does he emphasize this? Why? It's because we have a higher calling. He says, these are not even proper among the saints. Now, when you hear the word saint, you, you get messed up because in our culture, saints are a Catholic thing, usually, and it's someone like Mother Teresa or someone else, you know, something like that on that level who has done miraculous things and they're declared by a religious person, whether it's the Pope or someone else, to be a saint. In the Bible, the word saint is not that. In this passage, what he's saying is, you as a follower of Jesus, every one of you, you are a saint. Uh, it's the word for, it comes from the Greek word for hagios, for holy or set apart or set or set apart for a special purpose. So God sets something apart for a special purpose. He calls it holy. Since you as a follower of Jesus are set apart to Christ as one of God's children, you are a saint in the eyes of God, no matter how you behave. It comes with the title Christian. 
or follower of Jesus. And he says, that's such a high calling. He says, therefore, it doesn't make sense that things like immorality and purity and greediness in the area of our sexuality would characterize us because that's not who we are. That's not who you are. You have a higher calling for your life, for your body, and for this part of your life. Now, let me ask a question. I need to clear something up. Is God just a downer? Because some people are listening, you're thinking, you know something, if this is, if this is the Christian God, I want to look for another alternative. The fact is this, God is not down on romantic love or sexual intimacy. Only the perversions of it that wreck havoc in our lives. Okay? So you tweet that out if you want to tweet something today. God is not down on it. In fact, God designed it. Do you realize that in all of the animal kingdom, there's a lot of ways to reproduce that are a lot less fun than sex? God designed the intimacy, the excitement, the joy. He designed the hormones. He designed the feelings and emotions of love that we encounter with another person. God's not down on that. He actually designed it. That's why when he made Adam and then he created Eve to go with Adam... He didn't just duplicate another Adam, okay? God made Eve different than Adam, and Adam took one look at Eve, newly created, naked as she could be, in the garden, and his, res- his response was, "Woo!" that's in the Hebrew language. <laughs> and then he says, I like this. You know, she is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. And it's a, it's a little poetic way of basically saying, she is like me, but different, and Adam liked the differences. And there's no comment on whether Eve liked the differences or not, but I have to believe by faith that she did. Okay, so God is not down on this. God is not down on this. But God knows the results of the research before the researchers ever began. God knows that when you try to have a different design for how you live your life in terms of your sexuality and love and marriage, when you go outside of God's plan, you experience pain eventually. It's, it's, it's a path that is not to greater joy, greater fulfillment, better marriages. So, you know, God just loves us enough to tell us the truth and uh, realize he's not down on all the fun stuff. Number two, the passage then moves on and gets even more serious about how God thinks about this. The second, second section, he says, watch not just how you live, watch how you speak, because love is no joking matter. And he uses three terms. He says, and, verse 4, there must be no filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting. Basically dirty jokes. Because these are not fitting, but rather the giving of thanks. So now he gives you three things to avoid in the area of sexuality. Don't make jokes about it, especially in an inappropriate, filthy, dirty way. Now all of us, well, I have done this. I mean, growing up as a kid, this was the major source of humor. All right? This was the major source of humor. And and God says, no, no, Dale, don't do that. Don't don't treat this lightly. Don't joke about it and use it as a topic of casual conversation. But then he gives us a choice. He said, but rather giving of thanks. Now, when I saw that, I thought, so no, now now Thanksgiving is being mixed in with a sermon on sex. You know, but why why does he say that? I think he's saying, "Let, let positive things flow out of your mouth. Be a person that's known for always being thankful for things, always being thankful for God, always being thankful for where you are in life. 
Some of you are single right now and you really wish you were maybe in a relationship or married. I understand that. And God says, can you trust me? Can you thank me? Can you, can you trust me through your temptations and struggles? And can you be thankful for having a faith community around you that hopefully will encourage you in the right direction instead of letting you drift in the wrong direction? There's, but, but I love the fact that he says, you know, if you need to open your mouth, find something to say thanks for. And let that characterize you. Because people that are known for always turning a conversation toward the positive and toward something that they are thankful for, instead of just rolling deeper into the smut, are people that you'll want to be around in the long run. I just It's fascinating to me that God says, you know, put away these three things and replace it with just an attitude and expressions of thankfulness and then the passage goes into a third warning and this one is hard to understand if you don't study it carefully so number one warning be careful how you live number two be careful how you speak number three and do all this for this you know with certainty so verse five is going to be something you don't have to doubt for this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man that is always wanting more, who is an idolater that is worshiping false idols such as sex, no one of these has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Woo! Here's my summary. Watch out for the hypocrisy of claiming to be a follower of Jesus and yet living a lifestyle immersed in in these sins why because your choices have eternal implications now when you study this there are two views of what this means but let me point these out the two eternal issues that often get discussed are is your salvation your entry to heaven eternal life and the area of eternal rewards and i think these two issues kind of come into play here But let me first point out what it's not teaching. Don't miss this. This is not teaching that sexual sin removes you from the family of God. It's not teaching that there's something about sexual sin that would reverse your salvation if you have come and placed your faith in Christ. It is not teaching that. We know that from all the rest of Scripture. By grace we are saved through faith, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 and not as a result of our works, not as a result of, of, of obeying the law or anything else. So we know that we're saved by grace through faith. We know that even Jesus, by the way, talked about sexual sin when he said this. This really shook some people up. He said, um, you know, sin is really a heart issue before it's an action. So Jesus said, for example, he said, if a man or woman have, if you have lust in your heart for someone that you're not married to, if you, if you, actively not just have a desire for them but you engage and you play that relationship out in your mind if you have lust then you've committed adultery <clears throat> in other words sin is a heart issue as as much as an action in the eyes of god so by that definition i am an adulterer and that shouldn't surprise you because i am a i think a pretty normal American guy and in fact I sit in a room of adulterers now hopefully all of us have not had adultery 
performed adultery. By God's grace, I have not done that physically. But yet, mentally, at times, inappropriate thought, inappropriate lust, this movie, this picture, this image, this person, you know, we've all, at times, I believe there may be a few of you that have a special gift from God who have not done that. But, you know, you know lust is something that we usually share, and it's, it's a struggle. So, you know, what, what, what we know is that he is not saying in this passage that if you commit sexual sin, you lose your salvation. So what is he saying? I think it's one of two things, and you could take your pick. One is there are passages in Scripture like this where there is a principle in Scripture that we are known by the fruit in our lives. And where there is no fruit, there may be no root. In other words, it's a warning perhaps concerning our salvation that when we are professing Christians and yet accepting sin and content to live in it without even struggling with it, in other words, I don't really care what the Bible says. I don't care what my friends, I, you know, I'm just going to accept this. When, when, we, when we are content to live in sin as a lifestyle, we may, it may be because we don't really possess life in Christ. Maybe we haven't really accepted Christ as our Savior and, 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 our, you know, and our Savior and Lord. Maybe we aren't there. A summary that I would give you is if one, it, one may profess but yet not possess eternal life. No fruit could mean no root, so examine your faith. That's what I say. If I have a friend who is living in open immorality and, and they claim to be a follower of Jesus and they say, you know, I think Jesus is okay with this. I'm okay with it. I don't really give a rip what people think. And they're just going to stay in that. I can't say to them, I don't believe you're a Christian because I can't see their heart. But I also cannot say to them, well, I disagree with you, but, you know, take comfort. I'll see you up in heaven. I don't think I can say that to them because I have no assurance because if I don't see at least a struggle with it or a desire to abandon it, and, you know, if we are content to live in open sexual immorality or any other form of immorality and we're just content with it, then that could be an indicator that, have I really come into a relationship with Jesus Christ? So my challenge to my friend would be, examine your heart, examine your faith, because I can't give you assurance of your salvation. It's a little tricky conversation, but I've had that conversation a number of times over the years. <clears throat> so I think this could be one of those types of statements that's just kind of, shocking us by saying, you know, people that live this lifestyle, not people that slip up and sin, people that live the lifestyle of being known as an immoral, impure, greedy man just isn't consistent with the kingdom of God. So do a heart check. There's a second view, though, of this passage, which actually I would probably embrace personally, if you want to know where I'm coming from. And that's the view that this passage is talking about eternal rewards, not salvation. Because it emphasizes that in verse 5 where he says, Know with certainty that no immoral, impure person, covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Because not only do we have salvation as a gift from God by grace, but there is this thing Jesus even talked about called eternal rewards, 
where Jesus said, don't be a fool, don't lay up all your treasure on earth, lay up treasure in heaven where it'll never be lost or stolen. There's, there's a number of passages where God talks about that as a Christian, saved by grace, headed for heaven, you will enter heaven either kind of absent of eternal rewards and inheritance or with a larger inheritance and eternal reward. Now exactly what these are, I don't have time to go into today. Um, but we've, uh, we did a sermon on this when I taught on Matthew 6, 19 to 21. And if you email the office, we can find it and send you a link to it if you want to hear a whole sermon on eternal rewards. But I think what he may be teaching is this, the tolerance of sin in our lives and the choices we make cause the loss of eternal reward. And that's, that's a fact. So he says this does affect eternity one way or the other. It affects your rewards or it at least should cause you to ask the question, are you really a committed, not just committed, are you a follower of Jesus? You see, it doesn't fit who we are. Next week's passage, just to tease you, look at verse 7, the very next passage. says, therefore, do not be partakers with them, that is, people that are living this way, for you were formerly of the darkness, but now you are light in the Lord, walk as children of light. In other words, he's saying, hey, this was your lifestyle, but you're a new person in Christ. Don't stay there. Today is the first day of the rest of your life. And I'll bring this up in the end, but I just want to briefly mention it right now, and that is this. If you are feeling kind of convicted, like, whoa, Dale, I just got a revelation this morning. No one's ever taught this before. I didn't realize God takes this seriously. I didn't realize God was so clear. What do I do? Number one, know that God loves you. He died for you. Your sins are paid for on the cross. There is no sin outside of that. And he wants tomorrow, in fact, he wants the rest of today to be the first day of the rest of your life. Begin to follow Jesus in this part of your life and, and uh, confess your sin, claim his forgiveness, and know that he will walk with you through your struggles. Because I realize this is a struggle, especially in today's culture that is so sexually perverse and saturated. You know, I thank God that when I was coming through college, I didn't have to deal with picking up my phone. I didn't have a cell phone. Nobody had cell phones. Okay? So if I wanted to glance at some pornography, I had to be risky. Man, I had to lay out some serious money for a glossy magazine, or I needed to sneak into my, my roommate's collection when he wasn't in the room. Because he knew that as a Christian, I wouldn't do that. Did I ever do that? None of your business. <clears throat> no, of, of course I did that. To my shame, I did that. So, realize that, as Matt said, you know, we're not perfect people. We sin. But God wants something better for us. And that's been the joy of of my life because I was taught the rest of this story that I'm teaching you today when I was in college. And it totally changed my relationship with Becky. It totally changed the, how we approached our dating and our marriage. And we had the joy 
And we have the joy to this day of not having the baggage of former sexual partners because both of us waited till we were married. You know, it wasn't because I was a spiritual giant. It was probably because she was a spiritual giant. Yeah. I didn't want to get slapped by her. Probably came close a couple times, but she probably thought about it. But no, I didn't have to. We held each other to a higher standard. And, and, and we were surrounded by friends who held us to a higher standard. So I don't share any of this out of pride because you probably weren't surrounded by those friends. You had a different set of friends with a different standard, right? So I hope you're hearing that you're not here this morning being judged. But you're here this morning saying, you're hearing this morning that there is hope for tomorrow and the rest of your life to be different. And that it's different for these three closing reasons. Because I wanted to end on this note. Why does God think so much about sex? Is God hung up on this when it ought to be no big deal? Here's the highlights. And I typed them out for you. You don't even have to write them down. It's because God loves us and he wants his best for us. Underline that. God knows his plan is the best plan for a life of intimacy and joy and pleasure beyond any other approach. He loves you and he wants the best for you. He's not a robber. He's not a taker. He's a giver. Number two, God designed marriage and intimacy as a holy gift. Man, this thing is, is a holy gift from God to be enjoyed God smiles on the intimacy of a couple loving each other in the context of marriage. God is not embarrassed by it. He applauds it. He applauds it. And number three, your body is a precious gift from God and the temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16 to 20, which you will read if you do the encounters with God, tells us why God really takes this so seriously. Listen to it. In the wrong book. 1 Corinthians 6. Here we go. He says, But one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with Christ. So flee from immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside of his body. But the immoral man, and it's talking about sexual immorality, sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God with your body. In other words, wow. Your body was a precious gift given to you to be used to glorify God, to be used as a tool for honor and honoring him and his spirit lives in you whatever you do with your body you drag the holy spirit right through it man so glorify god not just with your soul even with your body it's a gift from god i love the fact that uh this service is flowing now into a time of communion and in the next 10 minutes, we want you to join us in worship. And the cool thing about the communion time as the band comes to lead us is it gives you a chance to sit and just pray.
So sit first and just pray. And if there's areas of your life that this morning has brought to the surface, God says if you confess your sin, He is faithful and just to forgive you. So sit, be honest with God. Bask in the grace of Christ. The forgiveness that He has for all of our sins. No matter when and where we sin. And then, when you're ready, if you have put your trust in Christ, know that you're forgiven. And know that He will love you even through your struggles. Go, take the cup, take the bread. Remember that it represents the body and the blood of Jesus. Sacrificed for all of our sins. Eat and drink in remembrance of Him. Father God, thank You for Your Word, for Your honesty. It's a sensitive subject, Father, because it cuts to so much of what is intimate in our lives. But we thank You that even in this most intimate part of our lives that You love us, You have a plan for us, and You have grace and forgiveness for the times that we fail to follow that plan. So we thank You that we can now spend some time at the cross focused on the cross, giving thanks for all that you've done for us. May our love for you be deepened as we face honestly our own sinfulness. And then may we be motivated by your love and grace to follow you more closely. In Christ's name, amen.